If you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians today. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll spill over a little bit into uh, the beginning of chapter 7. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, page 955 uh, is where you will find um, today's text. Uh, This morning, we are beginning this new series that we're calling American Gods. Uh, And what we're going to do over these next seven weeks is each week, we'll look at one of what's known as the cardinal sins, uh, or the seven deadly sins. Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. Uh, In each and every culture, uh, in each and every era, these sins take on their own forms of expression. And so together in this series, we're going to consider what these sins look like in 21st century America. And to do that, you'll hear a lot in this series, we're going to use the imagery and the language of idolatry. Uh, We actually thought about calling the series American Idols, but we were a little concerned there'd be like a line of people forming outside the building whose parents never told them they couldn't sing and thought American Gods is probably a little bit better choice uh, for the series. So, So there it is. A lot of you will be familiar with this language. If not, let me just say this by way of introduction. An idol is not just a statue or a totem. Uh, An idol is any focal point of our worship, of our devotion, that is not the one true God. And we are, uh, both individually and as a culture, prone to devote ourselves to counterfeit gods who really are no gods at all. Gods who make promises that they fail to deliver on. In reality, all sin is idolatry. All sin is idolatry. It's disordered desire. It's disordered affections. Uh, It is acts of devotion to these counterfeit gods. But in a unique way, the seven deadly sins are idols that compete for and steal our worship and devotion. And this is why the historic church has singled these out as these seven cardinal sins. They are particularly destructive because of what they are, and they almost always give birth to a variety of other kinds of sins. They lie at the root of other kinds of sin. In one of his letters, the Apostle John concludes his charge saying, Beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. And as Christians, none of us set out following Jesus Christ, intending to devote ourselves to a false god. That's that's exactly what we renounce when we make this decision, this commitment to follow and believe in Jesus. But these sins, and I'm sure you know this experientially as I do, these sins continue to have an appeal. And remnants of them remain in our flesh, in our sinful nature. So that though we indeed are new creations in Christ, we are still prone to idolatry. And this is why John in his letter calls Christians, he's talking to beloved brothers and sisters. He says, beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. So if in hearing about this series that it was coming up over these past couple weeks, if you were hoping to take a few cheap shots at American culture, then wrestle with this on a deeper and more personal level. That is not what this series primarily is, to just take some cheap shots at culture. Wrestle with these things on a deeper and more personal level. The seven deadly sins are not merely out there. They are in here. They're in here. And though you and I are certainly shaped by, are certainly influenced by an idolatrous culture, at the end of the day, we carry the responsibility to heed those words of the Apostle John and keep ourselves from idols. 
So we begin this morning with the counterfeit God of lust. Uh, And there are a variety of ways we could define that. Uh, Lust is a word that gets applied to different realms of life. Um, We lust for money. We lust for power. It's kind of a substitute word for desire in many cases. But for our purposes, and as it relates to the seven deadly sins, lust is an idolatry of sex and sexuality. So I want to define it for you this morning like this. Lust is sexual desire and sexual activity that subvert God's good design for human sexuality. Lust is sexual desire and activity, both of those, that subvert God's good design for human sexuality. And it doesn't take a journalist's observational skill to recognize that lust permeates the world in which you and I live. But I want you to hear this morning from the get-go, not cultural arguments, I want you to hear from me how much of a personal stake I have in this. Uh, for me, lust is not a cultural idol. It is, a, it is one of my idols. Uh, and lust is not just one of the seven deadly sins. It is one of my sins, one of my besetting sins. Something that I have discovered uh, lies very deep in the recesses of my sinful nature and something that has surfaced in a variety of ways over the course of my life. So I have desired and acted on sexual desires outside of God's design. That's me. I've been addicted to pornography. I've been attracted to women who aren't my wife, and I've indulged those thoughts at times. I've sought out, uh, and I have viewed images or movies, even not explicitly pornographic ones, for the purpose of indulging some kind of sinful, lustful craving. And even when I'm walking in freedom from these things, Rarely does a day go by that I am not acutely aware of my own heart's proclivity, my own heart's temptation to lust, and the existence of that temptation in my heart and mind. Now, on top of that, as a pastor, one of the most frequent and recurring things that I get invited into to speak into, to counsel, to care for, are about lust. So I know, for many of you, lust is your idol too, or one of them. So I'm imploring you this morning, do not hear this as a lecture. Do not distance yourself from this and hear it only through those ears. Hear it as one who, like me, has disordered heart affections, who, like me, desperately needs new mercy from God to put to death the sins of lust that remain in us and to replace our disordered desires with a deeper and more satisfying affection in Christ. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll start in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. 
but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Guide us, O God, by your word and by your spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom, and that in your will we might discover your peace. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This text, as you've heard, is primarily about sexual activity. But by further understanding the activity, we also begin to understand the desire that lies underneath it and behind it. Lust includes both of those things. And so we must not be content to simply manage or avoid sinful actions. We have to think more comprehensively about the affections and desires of our hearts, the lusts behind our actions. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, calls us to this very thing. In Matthew 5, he says, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. That's a sinful action. Jesus goes on to say, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, there's a desire piece without action there, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So lust includes both the action and the desire. Two big ideas from this text, then, that we will walk through uh, with the rest of our time together this morning. The slavery of sexual immorality and the freedom of sexual fidelity. First, the slavery of sexual immorality. Um, 1 Corinthians, we did a series on this entire book uh, a couple of years back. So it's a great book. It's a great study. If you remember from that series, if you were here with us, this is essentially the Apostle Paul's responses to a myriad of problems, a myriad of questions happening in the Corinthian church. Some of those problems have everything to do with lust. And so we learn from this passage that some Christians in Corinth are employing the services of prostitutes. We learn also from this text that the thought process behind that, at least some of it, was this idea that was pervasive in the first century Mediterranean world, that the physical body doesn't really matter that much. All things are lawful for me, and food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Paul there is quoting back the Corinthians' own words to them. These are, these are their own thoughts, perhaps even their own slogans in that time and place. And they're expressing this idea that because the physical body doesn't really matter that much, we should indulge our cravings for whatever, for food, for sex, whatever we want, we should pursue. And Paul quickly here corrects that line of thinking. He says there's a good design of God for our physical bodies, that they are not meant for any and every craving, any and every indulgence. He says some sexual activity is immoral. Some is wrong. 
It's subversive to God's good design. And the way Paul articulates that here, he says, our bodies are not meant for that. Instead, they are meant to be devoted to God. He addresses some specific actions here, but this term that he uses here and really gets used throughout the New Testament, sexual immorality, that term in Scripture has a really broad definition, a really broad application. So what we really have to do when we think about lust is back up and consider what is really God's design for sex. Because really it's anything that's outside of that can classify under this broad header of sexual immorality. When we survey the entirety of Scripture, we find, first and foremost, that sex is good. That it's good. It's a good gift of God. And I want you to think about how countercultural that is to so many of our experiences and the experiences of people that we know and love. Contrary to that, sex is not dirty or gross. Um, Sex is not oppressive or manipulative or abusive. It is rather the deepest kind of physical intimacy that two people can experience. And as Paul explains the reasons not to indulge every sexual craving that we have, not to offer our bodies in worship to this counterfeit God of lust, he says something really profound. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul there is quoting Genesis chapter 2. He's going all the way back to the beginning of human history, and he's pointing to that design of God. And in Genesis 2, we read that God created man, he created woman in his own image, and he joined them together in a relationship of complete and perfect intimacy. So it was complete and perfect emotional intimacy, complete and perfect spiritual intimacy, and complete and perfect physical intimacy. So the good design of God is that sex becomes this physical expression and experience of a covenantal union between one husband and one wife. Sex is, in a quite literal way, two individuals, a husband and wife, becoming one flesh and experiencing and expressing that union in a way that truly nothing else can. So sex is so much more than physical. It's so much more than a merely physical action. Paul articulates here a number of reasons that we are to value the body and that we are to think more deeply about how we express sexuality. One is that our bodies will, just like Jesus, experience resurrection. Verse 14, God will raise us up. The fact that some aspects of our physical bodies here on earth continue into eternity, that our bodies in some way, shape, or form are eternal, imparts great worth and great value to them. And then down in verse 19, he says, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That God's own spirit dwells in our physical bodies. That we are in our physical bodies stewards of the very presence of God on earth. These in and of themselves are more than enough reason to value our physical bodies and what we do with them. But the most compelling argument that Paul offers in this text follows this theme of union. Verse 15 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is what it means for us to experience the salvation that has been accomplished by Jesus' death and resurrection. By faith, we become united with Christ, he in us and us in him. And it's not only as we tend to think about it in the Christian church that Jesus dwells in us. More often than that, more frequently in the New Testament, we're told that we are in Christ, 
that we, are, we belong to him, that we are, we are united with him in his death and resurrection, that we are crucified with him, that we are hidden with him, that we are kept in him. Notice how in this text then, these two unions are tied together. Salvation is union. Sex is union. And so our union with Christ must shape our sexual union. In God's good design, when we look at the whole survey of Scripture, sex is for procreation. Uh, It's how we fulfill the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sex is for enjoyment. Spouses are called, they're even commanded to enjoy one another. But underneath, even those good aspects of God's design, sex is an act of worship. Sex is sacramental. It's meant to be, because of what it is, a tangible experience of covenantal union that points to our union with Jesus. Now, even if you've never thought about sex in that way, because I don't assume that you have, we know something of this is true experientially. Experientially, we know that there is a unique weight and a shame and a horror and a guilt and a pain that comes with so much of the sexual activity and desire that exists in our world. And in our own lives, we experience sexual sin, both our own and the sexual sin of others against us, more acutely, more intensely than we do other types of sin. Why is that? Why is that? Quantitatively, this is just another kind of sin. It's just another one of the thousands of different ways specifically that we can rebel against God. But qualitatively, subjectively, it feels different. And 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 is the theological, biblical reason behind that. You are meant for union with Christ. That's who you are meant for. And for those of you who are married, you are meant for union with your husband or wife. Anything that's not that, sex outside of marriage, adultery, pornography, homosexuality, sexual fantasy, just to name a few of many more we could name, the activity and desires of all of these things and others, they are an affront to the unions that we are meant for. That's why it feels so different. And this is why Paul writes in verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Now, in one sense, that's just not true. There's other kinds of sin that we use our physical bodies for all the time. Think of alcoholism and substance abuse. All kind, we use our physical body for almost every kind of sin we indulge in. But because sex is union, and because our bodies are meant to be used in light of our union with Christ, our sexual activity, our sexual desire, has unique power to either solidify or to subvert our entire understanding of union. So we really kid ourselves, culturally speaking, when we reduce sexual activity to merely a physical exchange, a physical action. When we rationalize or we minimize our lust and the damage that it causes to ourselves and to others. I mean, we don't even have time this morning to talk about how much damage lust does to other people how it objectifies other people created in the image of God, how it gives birth to all kinds of evil, like sexual assault and sex trafficking. But the reality is, as we think about this topic, lust and sexual immorality is slavery. It's slavery. It promises satisfaction. It promises pleasure. It promises escape. It promises acceptance or whatever whatever else it promises. 
but it always fails to deliver on those promises. And in fact, the only thing it does deliver on consistently is that it leaves us with a deeper sense of brokenness, emptiness, and being enslaved. But, thanks be to God, that is not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story. There's hope and there's grace. And at the end of chapter 6, Paul starts talking about that even more. Verses 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And this really is the fundamental difference in our understanding and our practice of sexuality. This is really the fork in the road between God being God and sex or self or any of the other myriad things and counterfeit competitors that we would put in God's place. We are not our own. And when we believe this lie that we can do whatever we want to do with our bodies, that nobody but me has the right to tell me what I do or don't do with my body, as conventional wisdom puts it, that is not us asserting our freedom. That is us asserting our slavery. We are not our own, and that is good news for we who are sexually broken and sexually enslaved. It is good news for a culture that is so sexually compromised because the reality that we are not our own goes hand in hand with the reality that through the work of Christ we have been bought with a price, that we belong, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, body and soul to God. This is the salvation picture, we sung about it together this morning too, of ransom. That we who are otherwise enslaved have been bought back out of that slave market of sin. And not just sexual sin, but all sin. Jesus sets us free from sin's domineering and corrupting tyranny. We are bought, we are purchased, we are ransomed from the futility, from the despair, from the shame of our sin. We are never the ultimate owner of our own lives. And whether or not it feels like that to you this morning, that is a gift of God's grace that you don't belong to yourself. So often in the deceitfulness of sexual sin, we're enslaved and we don't even know it. We're like hostages with Stockholm Syndrome, who in the name of indulging a craving or living autonomously, we embrace our captor. Instead, what is infinitely better, what we need is the genuine freedom that comes through the ransom of Jesus, the genuine freedom of living in line with God's good design. And so second, let's talk about that even more, the freedom of sexual fidelity. In the opening verses of chapter 7, Paul starts to talk less about what we should avoid and more about what we should pursue. And in the Christian life, and it'll be particularly important as we get into this series, the American Gods series, we don't fight sin simply by self-denial and restraint. Those are important. They're important. But we must fight sin by finding deeper satisfaction and deeper joy in the freedom and the life that is ours in Christ. Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century. One of his most famous works is a sermon that's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And I'm sure that I'll refer to it more throughout this series as we walk through it in the coming weeks. But in that sermon, Chalmers says, the only way to truly put sin to death, the only way to truly keep ourselves from idols is to see our affections for Jesus Christ deepen. So we are worshipers. We devote ourselves and we set our affections on things, on someone or something. Idolatry is when we locate that in the wrong place. 
But the need to, uh, to do that, the need to devote ourselves, the need to worship is part of what it means to be human. We can't rid ourselves of that. We need some focal point for all of that. And Chalmers says it this way. He says, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart. It must have something to lay hold of. And which, if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. And he goes on to say, the heart would revolt against its own emptiness. It could not bear to be left in a state of waste and cheerless insipidity. The moralist who tries such a process of dispossession as this upon the heart is thwarted at every step by the recoil of its own mechanism. That's really good. But as a 19th century dead Scottish guy, let's try to interpret the language a little bit. He's saying, if when you find a sin like lust in your heart, your approach to rid yourself of that consists only of strategies and tactics. Consists of swearing not to do that anymore. I promise I won't do that again. I'll clean myself up. I'll get better. You will never be rid of the sins of lust. Self-denial and strategies, they're important. They have their place. But in order to really see lust die, we must replace our corrupted and disordered affections with beautiful and redemptive ones. Regardless of our station in life, married and unmarried, because we have both of us together in the room, this means that we look to Jesus as the satisfaction of our longings. Sex is a gift from God. It is not God itself. Thank God that that is true. When we take God's gifts, when we make them ultimate, this too is idolatry. And so married or unmarried, we are not meant to find our identity. We're not meant to find our worth in sex. We're meant to locate our worth, our identity in Christ. And then we express that Christ-centered identity in all of the aspects of our lives, including sex. So what I would say to you this morning is this. When it comes to lust, therefore, we are not to deny or suppress sexuality, but instead to become people of sexual fidelity. For all of us, this means bodily consecration. It's one of the rhythms of grace that we've looked at in past weeks. Uh, You will see as we go through this series on the seven deadly sins that those rhythms of grace are often the, the beautiful counterpart to what sin has corrupted. So rather than lust, rather than devoting ourselves to idols of sex and sexuality, we devote ourselves in worship to God. That's the beginning of sexual fidelity. It's to see the value of the body, to see it as sacred, as an instrument of worship, and to see the calling and opportunity it really is to glorify God in your physical body. I want to talk a little bit to each unmarried and married people this morning then about what sexual fidelity looks like more in more detail. For an unmarried person, for those of you who are unmarried in the room, sexual fidelity means sexual chastity. Uh, it means not engaging in sexual activity. And the Apostle Paul himself has authority to write about this because that's him. He's a model of this kind of lifestyle. He says in verse 1 of chapter 7, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And he continues later on in the chapter to talk a lot more about singleness. He commends singleness as a good and noble and honorable way of life. Now, in our culture, celibacy is written off as a non-starter. Sorry, I got lost here for a second. 
It's written off as a non-starter. It's considered completely unrealistic, naive, a relic of a day gone by. But what I would put to you this morning is that a lot of that is because our cultural understanding and practice of sexuality has become really warped. We are a hyper-sexualized people. Sex is everywhere all the time. And every era of human history has had its share of sexual immorality. That is for sure the case. But thanks to mass media, thanks to the internet, the world has never seen a hyper-sexualized culture like the one you and I are in right now. Sex is instant, it's affordable, it's anonymous to anyone and everyone that has a screen attached to the internet. In God's design, however much people might write this off, in God's design, celibacy is a good path. It's a good path. And in the church, we should celebrate celibate men and women as examples of sexual fidelity. Examples that are worthy of our emulation. Some people, like Wesley Hill, choose celibacy as a response to same-sex attraction. If you've never heard of Wesley Hill before, I would absolutely commend his writings and his speaking to you. He's a man who has only ever felt attraction for other men. But rather than by the cultural lie that we should just express whatever desire we find in ourselves, and rather than by this fundamentalist lie that if you're a serious enough Christian, if you have enough faith, you'll automatically become heterosexual, he chooses to live a, a celibate life. And not only to live it, but to embrace it. To embrace it trusting that there's more satisfaction and joy in that. Other people, like the late John Stott and many others like him, choose celibacy in order to devote themselves more fully to mission and to ministry. Paul talks about that a lot later in chapter 7. There's a, a single-minded dedication that people who are not married can give to mission and ministry. Married people live with what Paul calls divided interests. Other people don't so much choose celibacy as feel like celibacy is forced upon them. And I know that's true for some of you or has been true for some of you at different times in your life. I'm speaking primarily of men and women who want to be married, but at this point in their life are not. And you don't need me to say this to you because you know this, but let me say it to you because I want you to know that I see you and hear you and feel that. That's a weighty burden to carry around with you to have an unmet longing of that magnitude. And any time a married person tells you about the quote-unquote gift of singleness, you're like, you can have that gift. I don't want it. It feels patronizing. It feels condescending for married people to say stuff like that to you. I get it. I was there. Let me instead then hold up examples of people like Paige Benton and others like her who a few years ago wrote this great article called Singled Out by God for Good. It is, and there's other writings like this, but it's a genuine, nuanced, faithful but not simplistic wrestling with singleness from someone who is single and celibate but would rather be neither of those things. All that to say, to those of you who are unmarried, change your paradigm in how you think about sex. Specifically this, don't suppress sexuality. Instead, see celibacy as a beautiful expression of it. The practical outworking of that might, might not look very different, but the mentality is completely different. Don't suppress sexuality. See celibacy as a faithful expression of, of sexuality. Fight lust by finding deeper satisfaction in that form of sexual fidelity. It will not, I promise you, make sense from a cultural standpoint. 
But in a culture so sexually broken, you don't want your life to make sense. You don't want your life to make sense. For those of you who are married, fight lust by practicing sexual fidelity within your marriage. Paul also writes about this. He writes about, as I'm sure you heard as we read chapter 7, he writes about sex from a very logical, uh, pragmatic perspective. Sex is good. It helps you fight temptation. Don't deprive each other for an extended period of time. Uh, Not exactly Sinatra or Michael Buble, okay? He's not a particularly poetic writer when it comes to how he describes sexual relationship between husband and wife. But think about who Paul is. He's a celibate man. Uh, Don't expect him to wax poetic about sexual activity. His form of sexual fidelity is celibacy. And so he's content, as he writes this, to acknowledge the goodness of sex without elaboration. But for married Christian couples, round out your view of sexual fidelity by also reading and studying texts like the Song of Solomon. Because that elaborates a lot on this topic. It's all about the enjoyment and the experience of sex between a husband and a wife. For my, as a pastor, for my interactions with most Christians, my observation is this. Most of us as Christians are more prude about sex than our Bible is. We're more prude about sex than our Bible is. And I say that with no desire for you to cross lines of wisdom and propriety, but to the married couples in the room, if your sex life only ever sounds like Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, maybe we shouldn't deprive each other. It's been a long time. We've prayed a lot. If that's, all, if that's the totality of your married sex life, if it never sounds like Song of Solomon, if, you, if you're not having sex in your marriage, if you don't want to have sex with your spouse, let those things be blinking lights on the dashboard of your life. We, we don't just become desensitized to God's good design by indulging lust. We also become desensitized to it when we avoid his good design, when we don't step into it enough. So rather than simply telling other people about this good design of God for marriage between a husband and wife, let your marriage be a compelling example of that and convince other people of that because you've become convinced of that yourself. We've got to acknowledge this because it's true. Sex changes when you have kids Sex changes as you age, and there are complicated and painful and extenuating circumstances like illness, like people who have experienced sexual trauma in their life. Don't hear me writing those things off in any way as I'm saying this. But for the love of all that is truly sacred, may we never be people who merely avoid what is evil. May we instead be those who run headlong into what is good. And may you taste and experience the very grace, the very glory of God in your own married sex life. Because part of God's redemption, part of God's reconciliation of a world that is so sexually enslaved and broken is when the people of God fully embrace and enjoy the freedom of sexual fidelity. You push back what is dark in the world, married men and women, when you enjoy sex in that context. You push back what is dark in the world. We've seen two pictures in this text of what salvation is. Union with Christ is one of them. Ransom is the other. I want to close and leave you this morning with a third. And it's the picture of sanctification. Christian, you are washed and you are cleansed by Jesus. And you heard, I hope, this morning during our words of encouragement, we read the verses immediately preceding this text that we've been in today. And after listing these various kinds of sin, many of which are sexual in nature, Paul says, 
Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Scripture, sanctification is past, it is progressive, and it is future. You have been washed by the work of Christ. You are being washed. You are being cleansed, transformed one degree of glory to another. And when Jesus makes all things new one day, you will be completely and fully washed. If you're anything like me, and I know that many of you are in this sense, you know the weight and the burden of lust, of the sins of sexual immorality. You know that you've known the slavery of it. You feel the remnants of it still present in your life. A good friend of mine once defined besetting sins as the sins that you will, on your deathbed, get to look in the eye and say, I am finally done with you. I'm finally done with you. I've wrestled and fought you my whole life, and I'm finally done. I expect to fight the temptation to lust for my entire life. But I do that, and I invite you to do the same. I do that knowing that I have been washed, am being washed, and will be washed by Jesus. Whenever I think about my sanctification, and particularly in this realm of sexual sin and lust, my mind immediately goes to this climactic scene in the movie Shawshank Redemption. Protagonist Andy Dufresne, if you've seen the movie, uses the prison sewer system to escape from jail. He crawls through the sewer pipe to escape. And at the end of that scene, Morgan Freeman narrates, as only Morgan Freeman can, and he says, Andy Dufresne crawled through a river of filth. I'm inserting my own word there. Andy Dufresne called through a river of filth and he came out clean the other side. This is our story. And for you who are experiencing sexual brokenness, sexual sin, you feel enslaved to it, this is your story. We will spend our lives crawling through a river of filth, our own and that of the world and the culture around us. But by the grace of God, we are washed and we will come out clean on the other side. So may you fight lust with a renewed sense of hope this morning, not to clean yourself up, but because Christ has already bought you. Christ has already washed you. And rather than living in guilt and condemnation, rather than suppressing and distancing yourself from sexuality, may you grasp the goodness and the true freedom of sexual fidelity. May you run into that. And may we redeem the corruptions of the counterfeit American God of lust with a full-hearted, full-bodied faithfulness to the one and only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And pray for us. Oh, what a difference it makes, Jesus, that you wash and cleanse us and ransom us from our slavery. That we don't have to clean ourselves up, but that you clean us. And I pray for my friends this morning that are here, that are immersed in this sin, that feel enslaved to it, that feel like there's no hope. May the hope of the gospel be theirs in faith this morning. That we do not need to simply deny and suppress, but there's something better for us to find in you, Jesus. May we be people of sexual fidelity. May we run into your good design and find joy in it. Give us the strength and grace by your Holy Spirit to do it. And particularly as we now come to this table, 
very aware for many of us of the sins that exist and continue in our heart. May we come to this table with faith that your grace is for us today, right now, that you have washed and are washing and will cleanse us completely when you come again. I pray this in your name. Amen.